This is my favorite time of day. <laughs> Love to worship. But i got to be honest with you all, I was really struck by the Word of the Lord that He laid open before us on Sunday out of Zechariah chapter 7. And just the realization, the reminder once again that we are a self-centered people. You might say, well, speak for yourself, Pastor Rick, and I would say I am. I am a self-centered people. I'm a self-centered guy. I am selfish. I love worship because of what it does for me, and I love to pray because of how I can get things off my chest, and I even love to study the Word of God because in so studying, I learn and I grow and I, and I expand in, in knowledge. And the Lord really, really knocked me upside the head with that statement in chapter 7, verse 5. What is it actually for me that you fasted? I mean, the people of Israel have been fasting for 70 years. Every month of Av, you may recall on Sunday, every month of Av in remembrance of the fall of the temple, they would pause and they would fast and they would look back at that horrible, terrible day. And I don't know exactly how they did it, but I imagine they probably, some of them put ashes on their heads and sat in sackcloth and really worked it up, you know? And not even trying to be religious, but just kind of wallowing in that self-pity that sometimes religion can bring. The sorrow of the great loss of the temple and God saying, who was that for? Was that for you or, or was that for me? What a great word. The most wonderful thing about it is it is followed by an incredibly encouraging and uplifting word. God convicts and then He comforts. And He will do this as we have seen often. And perhaps even in your own life. He's going to come to you with conviction first and you start to feel the weight of, man, where you are and what you've done and what your needs are. And suddenly here comes comfort. As you realize that it is by grace you are saved and this not of yourselves. So God is so good. I'm loving this book, Zechariah. Loving studying through it. Steve and I were talking earlier tonight just about how the power of the, of the messianic prophecies, the prophecies of the Christ, of Messiah, that are here in the book of Zechariah and after the fall of Jerusalem. 520 B.C. and now once we get to chapter 7, 518 B.C. So it's all after the fact. So we know everything Zechariah is talking about is looking to the future. Looking to a glorious coming kingdom that never has been, but will be. He's not looking back. Great thing about the book of Zechariah is the prophet's name gives us the entire essence of the book in miniature. You know it. Say it with me. The Lord remembers. The Lord blesses at the appointed time. Always does. He has not forgotten you. And He desires to bless you. And He will do so at the appointed time. And that continues to play out here between the Father and His people in the second half of the two-part answer to that question that was brought from Bethel. Remember the delegation from Bethel came down 12 miles down to Jerusalem asking a simple question, chapter 7, verse 3, Shall I weep in the fifth month and abstain as I have done these many years? They had kept that fifth month fast, that, that fast during the month of Av, which is remarkably a month of great tragedy for the Jewish people across history, as we've talked about. 
I mean, it's remarkable enough that the first and the second temples both were destroyed on the ninth of Av, Tisha B'Av, in history. And if you didn't hear what we talked about on Sunday, you ought to go back and listen to the, the history of what took place, of the tragedies and the calamities. The Mishnah calls it the five calamities, and yet there were many more that happened on that day in the month of Av as a horrific thing for the Jewish people. They have reason to fast. Honestly, among all the people of earth, I think they have most reason for self-pity. If anyone should wallow, it should be the people of Israel because they have been through it like nobody else. And so they come along saying, should we keep on fasting? I just love God's response. Was it for me? I mean, hey, if it's for me, yeah. If it's, if it's worship, if it's focusing on me, if it's recognizing me, if the fast... And by the way, apply this to yourself. If you are going to fast, if you desire to fast, it's a good thing. As long as the fast, with every hunger pain, is a reminder of Jesus. Is a reminder to stop and focus on Him and to think about Him. And to listen to Him and to draw strength from Him. That's a great reason to fast. But to fast so that you feel good about yourself... Jesus said in Matthew 6.16, Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites. They neglect their appearance, so they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Kind of like the way most of us look when we first get out of bed in the morning. See, that's what the Pharisees would do. They'd have their hair sticking out and their beard half grown, and they'd be all, you know, bad breath and everything. Oh, I'm I'm fasting right now, you know. Wow, religious guy there. Jesus said, truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you fast, anoint your head. Wash your face. So that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So the issue of anything we do, especially as Jesus' people, the issue is, who's it for? Anything of a spiritual nature or I'll say of a religious nature, hey, religion's not a problem as long as it focuses you on Jesus. The issue is most of the time religion doesn't. Most of the time religion binds me up and focuses me on myself. God says, was it for me that you fasted? And again, we can apply that to anything we do. Was it for me that you worshipped tonight? Jesus might ask. Is it for me that you have come in prayer? So the Lord really calls the people of Israel on it. The people of Judah, back in the land, He calls them, He, he brings to mind the stony, flint-hearted past. Right? Remember, we talk, talked about that, the, the adamant stone. Their hearts were like stone. They got so hardened against the Lord, adamantly opposed to the Lord. And He reminds them in chapter 7 of that entire past and of the desolation of the land that came as a result of their faithlessness. But where some might go for the throat, our Father always goes for the heart and begins by opening them up. He he talks about this, the storm wind of His discipline, which will crack open a hard heart, or the breath of His Spirit, which will also soften a hardened heart. Either way, God wants us to break the bad so that we might be open to receiving His grace. So the questioners from Bethel come and God responds with conviction in chapter 7 and now in chapter 8, which is all we're going to deal with tonight, just chapter 8. Now he comes with sweet comfort, verse 1. 
Then the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Zion. Yes, with great wrath, I am jealous for her. He repeats now what he spoke to Zechariah two years earlier. At the beginning of that night of visions, you may recall, Zechariah chapter 1, verse 14, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. God has a passion for His city, a passion for that place. He has chosen it as His capital city on earth. But here, God adds something. He repeats, I'm exceedingly jealous for Zion, but He adds, yes, with great wrath. Gadol Chema. Great wrath. Mighty fury is another way to put that. I am jealous. I am furiously jealous. The root word there literally means to glow or to burn. He burns with jealousy for Zion. A burning furious heat. Nahum chapter 1 verse 6 says who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken up by him. This is not a God that you want to oppose. Not a God you want to be adamantly against. And yet so many are. It's remarkable. The Bible also tells us in Hebrews 12.29, our God is a consuming fire. By the way, I apologize for not having verses up tonight, but my computer is down. So uh, you get what you get. Just write fast. Our God is a consuming fire, Hebrews 12.29. He says, I am jealous with a great wrath, with a furious wrath. What makes God furious? I can tell you one thing that I know for certain makes God furious when people mess with His holy city. When people think they know what's in the best interest of Jerusalem. When people look at that place, at Zion, and say, nah, you know what, we need to internationalize it. My friends, he doesn't want Jerusalem internationalized. It's my opinion, but I'm 99% sure God does not want Jerusalem in the hands of the world as a capital city uh, for the United Nations, you know, or, or for the Vatican. And by the way, both entities are very strong on wanting to internationalize Jerusalem, take it out of the hands of the Jewish people and make it a city for Christians, Muslims and Jews alike. Here's the thing. Jerusalem does not belong to Muslims. Jerusalem does not belong to Christians. Jerusalem does not belong to Jews. The reality is Jerusalem belongs to the Lord God. He says, it is my city. Psalm 48 verse 2, beautiful in elevation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north. The city of the great king. It is His. It belongs to Him. Isaiah chapter 60 verse 14, They will call you the city of the Lord and the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. It belongs to the Lord God. He chose it for Himself. He called it the apple of His eye. And you don't want to infuriate Him by messing with Jerusalem. After all, it is the seat of His future rule. 
It is the place from which the Bible tells us very clearly Messiah will return and rule and reign for a thousand years in the millennial kingdom. That is the location. God has chosen it for Himself. And now the Lord turns to that future. Verse 3. Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth. And the mountain of the Lord of hosts will be called the holy mountain. Three promises in one verse that he gives there. Take them one at a time. First he says, I will return and dwell there. Now, some have taken this to mean God's favor and goodwill toward Jerusalem and toward Israel. That now that the people have come back, what God is saying is, I'm with you. I got you. I'm here. And yeah, He's saying that to a degree, but to limit the statement, I will dwell there, to just a spiritualized idea is very much to weaken the statement. It waters down what the Lord said. Literally in the Hebrew, he says, I am returned and I will dwell. And both are written in the perfect tense of the verb. What does that mean? It means this is a done deal. I'm going to live here. This is my place. If you read the tail end of the book of Ezekiel, what you will hear is... How are you doing there, Jim? He tried to sneak in. He didn't think I'd see him. At the tail end of Ezekiel, what you see in that description there is the prince who dwells and who rules from that glorious millennial kingdom. It's Jesus. I will dwell there. I will live there. But right now, right now, Israel is Ichabod. Not Ichabod Crane. Israel is Ichabod. E-Kabod. Kabod being that Hebrew word for glory. E being without. No, no glory. Glory gone, literally. The word comes from Scripture. The name Ichabod was given by uh, the wife of Phineas. You remember the story? It's back in 1 Samuel chapter 4, where Eli's two boys, priests, decide that by taking the Ark of the Covenant into battle against the Philistines, that they can win. So they take the Ark into battle, and the Ark is, ch- is captured, and Hophni and Phineas are killed. Eli, when he falls, finds out about that, falls off his chair, breaks his neck, and dies. Phineas' wife is pregnant and in labor as he goes off to war. He dies when word comes to her in her pregnancy. As she's giving birth, she names the child Ichabod. Glory gone. Because in that moment, all three of the priests, Eli, Hophni, Phineas, they're all now dead. The Ark of the Covenant is in the hands of the enemy Philistines. Glory gone. Ichabod. And you know what? That's where Israel is today. Israel is Ichabod. Without glory. That the presence of the Lord. Now wonderfully, the Lord is present in believers in Israel. Just like He's present here with us tonight. Dwelling, abiding in the hearts of those who who believe in Him. Because He said, I'll put my spirit in you. But His presence, as in the temple of Solomon, not there. Glory gone. It pointed to a greater devastation and that of the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. where the glory would never again return to dwell. And you Bible students know what I'm talking about. The Shekinah glory. That, that cloud of glory that filled Solomon's temple. Ezekiel saw it depart step by step by step. 
And when they built the second temple, we have no record of that great glory ever entering the temple again. Of it ever being filled with that bright cloud of the presence of the glory of God. You might say, yeah, but, but, and I hear some of you. Jesus went into that temple. Here's the thing. He did go in in His first coming. But Jesus never dwelled in Jerusalem. He says through Zechariah, I will dwell there. I'm going to make that my home. He never did that. In His first coming, in fact, we know there are only three times mentioned in Scripture when Jesus even stayed overnight. Two of those when He was a kid. Luke 2.46, after three days, his parents found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. When they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. I know Mary sounded just like that. (laughs) And he said to them, Why is it that you are looking for me? Did you not know I had to be in my father's house? So he was there a couple of nights in Jerusalem as a 12-year-old. But for all of Jesus' visits to Jerusalem, and there were many of them in his life, the rest of the time, here's what we read he did. Mark chapter 11, verse 19. When evening came, they would go out of the city. Matthew chapter 21, verse 17. He went out of the city to Bethany and he spent the night there. And that was Jesus' custom. He came into the city for the feast days and the holidays and the festivals. But at the evening time, he would head out across the Mount of Olives, usually up over the top and down back to Bethany, where he stayed with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Or sometimes he would sleep out in Gethsemane. As on the night of his betrayal, which was the only other night in Scripture we know that he stayed in Jerusalem all night long, was when he was betrayed. Through the prophet Hosea, Jesus said, Hosea 5.15, I will go away and return to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. Ezekiel 48 verse 35 tells us the name of the city from that day shall be the Lord is there. Yahweh Shammah. The Lord is there. Why? Because He dwells there. So the first promise that He says is I will return to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Second promise. Jerusalem will be called the city of truth. Well, why will they call it the city of truth? Two good reasons, I think. One, truth himself will dwell there. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So if the truth lives there, no wonder it's called the city of truth because the truth is there. But there's another glorious reality here, and that is that Jerusalem will be called the city of truth because the people of truth live there. And I'm talking about Israel in the Millennial Kingdom. Listen to this. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 13. (laughs) Zephaniah and, and Hosea and these other prophets, we blew by them and they're now coming right back up because they're so significant. In Zephaniah 3, 13, the Lord says, The remnant of Israel will do no wrong and will tell no lies, nor will a deceitful tongue be found in their mouths, for they will feed and lie down with no one to make them tremble. So truth himself will be there and the people of truth will be there. So it is called the city of truth. And by the way, that's not Israel right now. 
fact, it's none of us right now. As much as we want to pursue truth and live by the truth, we still can have the struggles of, of you know, the little white lie uh, every now and then, the, the, the small mistruth. But in those days, truth will be the standard across the board. And in this political season, that blesses my heart. <laughs> Who do you trust? You know, who do you believe? Well, my political party. How do you know the guy's not a liar in your own party? Jesus, the truth, and the people of truth, living in Jerusalem. And promise number three, not only will He return and dwell there, and will the city be called the city of truth, promise number three, the mountain of the Lord will be called the holy mountain. What is the mountain of the Lord? It's Mount Moriah. It's the temple mount. That is the mount of the Lord. Isaiah chapter 2 verse 1 says it will come about in the last days. The mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob that He may teach us concerning His ways and that we may walk in His paths. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Why does everybody want to go to Jerusalem in the Millennial Kingdom? Because Jesus is there. And can you even imagine the first Jesus conference of the Millennial Kingdom? I can't wait! I get excited about going to a Calvary conference and a Jesus a Christ conference! Keynote speaker, Jesus! And can you imagine in that vast temple complex, people as far as the eye can see, and out of the temple walks Jesus, and He just starts teaching. And you don't have to listen to Pastor Rick's stupid puns. You just get to listen to Jesus. (laughs) Amen. And it'll be marvelous. Truth is there. Jesus is there. It's holy. That is, it's unlike anywhere else in the world. Dismal land can't hold a candle to this. The tragic kingdom, you know. In that day, if a team wins the Super Bowl and they're asked, what are you going to do next? They're going to say, I'm going to go to Zion. Because that's where Jesus is. That holy, glorious mountain. So He is jealous for Zion. Furiously jealous. He promises to return there, to dwell there in truth and in holiness. And then he gives the coolest scene of future Zion in its peace. Look at verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women will again sit in the streets or the corners or the squares of Jerusalem, each man with his staff in his hand. Note this because of age. And the streets of the city will be filled with boys and girls playing in its streets or or playing in its squares. So this tells us three more things about the coming kingdom. First off, it must have human inhabitants. I'm often asked this question, perhaps you are, you've wondered this, but we talk about a timeline of things, and, and the way the Bible, just taken literally, timelines things out is the church first is going to be caught up. In the rapture. Believers in Christ, yes, are going to be brought home before the tribulation of those days. There will be a seven year tribulation. Following that, we return with Jesus, but we have been glorified. This, for me, is the best reason to give your life to Jesus now, as opposed to waiting and seeing if maybe it's all true. Because if you go now, 
If you give your life to Jesus now, live for Him now, guess what? When He calls, you go. And you will be in your glorified body to live eternally from that point forward. Now that's what Scripture tells us. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Read it. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Read it. I can throw more verses, I just won't right now. So that's going to happen. We come back with them. We're in our glorified bodies. But note, he talks about old men and old women. Last I checked, glorified body don't age. You don't get old. So there are old men and old women and boys and girls living in Jerusalem here in this time of the millennial kingdom. It must have human inhabitants. Secondly, the human inhabitants will live to a ripe old age. That word age in verse 4, Rob, literally means abundance. An abundance of years. He says, each man, these, the older men, with his staff in his hand because of abundance. Because of the abundance of his years. There's going to be some old dudes walking around Jerusalem in that time. So old they're going to have their canes with them, their staff to lean on. Well, that's kind of a bummer. So they're, they're going to be aging and, and all that. God is going to grant long life. Long, in fact, well, I'll show you in just a minute. In fact, Isaiah 65. Go ahead and go back over to Isaiah chapter 65. Isaiah 65, verse 20, a verse that we've looked at before, but just consider it in speaking about and describing the reality of that thousand-year millennial rule of Christ. Isaiah prophesied, chapter 65, verse 20, No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of a hundred. Okay, so a hundred is going to be your teens. Would that be the best? Think about our youth group. They're all a hundred years old, 120 you know, running around next door, we're like, tell them whippersnappers to keep it down. You know, the older people, the older people, seven, eight, nine hundred years, I don't know. Some will probably live through the entire millennial kingdom. Because the Lord says, the one who does not reach the age of a hundred will be thought a curse. They will build houses and inhabit them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build and another inhabit. They will not plant and another eat. For as the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people and my chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands. The lifetime of a tree? There are olive trees in Gethsemane today that are 2,000 years old. The lifetime of a tree. Extended, long life. Human inhabitants living to a ripe old age and thirdly note that children will run amok. And it's one of the best sounds in Jerusalem. It's one of my favorite things to do when we finally, you know, we get about probably midway through the Israel tour when we go and we come into Jerusalem and I love the Jerusalem free day because my favorite thing to do is to grab a cup of really good coffee and sit in the central square of the old city and just watch people. Watch the Jewish people go about their business and think about what it's going to be like in the kingdom. And to watch little Jewish school children running up and down the streets freely, safely, while the IDF stand around with their Uzis and, you know, <laughs> and yet you feel safe. But I love hearing the sounds of the children's voices. They're going to run amok. 
And so what we have here is like bookends of the Father's love. We see the tottering old limbs of those blessed with long life. And we see the leaping young limbs of children at play in the square of the city of peace. And Zechariah describes this here after the Babylonian captivity. Talking about a time yet future where peace would come. And to the people listening to Zechariah as he described this, it would be hard to imagine. Because at this time, remember, it was an oppressed time. It was a time when outsiders looking in were causing problems, were trying to keep them from building the temple. Who certainly later on would not want Nehemiah and his men to build the wall. And these outsiders constantly oppressing and Persia over them and then Greece over them and then Rome over them. Times of oppression, not times of peace. Zechariah is describing this and it just doesn't seem possible and the Lord even responds to that. Verse 6, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If it is too difficult in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, will it also be too difficult in my sight? declares the Lord of hosts. Too difficult. Yipale in the Hebrew is wonderful. Marvelous. Or difficult or hidden. If it's too marvelous for you to imagine, is something hard for you to imagine hard for the Father to pull off? Remember, He says, I can do far beyond all you could ask or imagine. And that's what this is. It's beyond the imagination. But God stops the people and says, Hey, I know what you're thinking. As I'm talking about this, I know you're thinking, Impossible! No, it's not. Because I'm going to make it happen. Just because something's hard for us to comprehend doesn't mean God can't carry it out. Verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I'm going to save my people. From Note this, from the land of the east and from the land of the west. And I will bring them back and they will live in the midst of Jerusalem and they shall be my people and I will be their God in truth and in righteousness. Verse 7 is literally from the rising to the setting of the sun. The translators, see I like the poetry of that, and that's the way God said it. The translators say from the east to the west. I'm going to gather my people from the east, I'm going to gather my people from the west. And that's nice, and it it clarifies maybe for us. But God said, from the rising of the sun to the setting of the sun. I'm going to gather my people from the place of the sunrise. And I'm going to gather my people from the place that the sun sets. It is a Hebrew idiom meaning worldwide. From all direction, I'm going to bring my people in. Psalm 113, verse 3. From the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, the Lord's name is to be praised. Worldwide, the world will praise the Lord. Malachi 1.11. From the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be offered to my name and a grain offering that is pure, for my name will be great among the nations. From the rising of the sun, which actually is over this way. So, from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same. But what's interesting about this language is that the Jewish people had never been taken captivity in the West. They had only ever been taken captivity to the East. Even Israel, when it went down in 720 B.C., went to Assyria, which was northeast. But the Jewish people had never been taken captive to the West. And yet here, the Lord is saying, from the East 
to the west. I'm going to gather my people both directions. I'm going to bring them back into the land. And again, verse 8, he says, I will bring them back and they will live in the midst of Jerusalem. They'll be my people. I'll be their God in truth and in righteousness. This is a prophecy that has to be fulfilled after the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 because Rome was west. Rome would destroy Jerusalem and capture the people to the west. Babylon, Assyria, that was all east. What he's talking about here is now looking forward. Isaiah 11, verse 11 reminds us it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with His hand the remnant of His people. This was the first time. The first recovery coming on back after the Babylonian captivity. But long before that, Isaiah prophesied, it's going to happen again. And the Lord will do it again, this time from west as well as from east. Isaiah 43, verse 5, Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. And it's all God saying, Look, in the last days, I'm bringing my people back into this land. Which is why so many of us right now are very excited about the days in which we live. Because we see the Jewish people coming back into the land in an impossible scenario. Should not have happened. And even when it did happen, they should not have survived the War of Independence in 1948. They should not have made it through the Six-Day War in 1967 or the Yom Kippur War of 1972. It shouldn't have happened. They should not have a foothold in the land, and yet they do. And they keep coming back. They keep coming back. Verse 9, continuing on, thus says the Lord of hosts, Let your hands be strong, you who are listening in these days to the words from the mouth of the prophets, those who spoke in the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid to the end that the temple might be built. Those prophets would be Haggai and Zechariah. The two that were there prophesying two years prior to this in 520, as they needed to get back to work. God's talking to those people. He's talking in those days right here. And in verse 10 he says, For before those days there was no wage for man, or any wage for animal. And for him who went out or came in, there was no peace because of his enemies. And I said all men against one against another. So the Lord says, Let your hands be strong. That's another Hebrew idiom. Not idiot. It's a Hebrew idiom. Okay? And what it means is take courage. Take courage. Strengthen those feeble hands. These are those who experienced the hard times when the Temple Mount sat desolate. And the temple was unbuilt. And the Lord is referring back to what we already saw through Haggai the prophet. Haggai chapter 1 verse 6. You have sown much, but you harvest little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one's warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. So what God is describing in these two verses here is exactly what had taken place. That their wages were not working. Their life was not working. And things were not going well. Because the temple sat desolate. Verse 11. He goes on. But now... I will not treat the remnant of this people as in the former days declares the Lord of hosts. For there will be peace for the seed 
The vine will yield its fruit. The land will yield its produce. And the heavens will give their due. And I will cause the remnant of this people to inherit all these things. Verse 13, it will come about that just as you were a curse among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so I will save you that you may become a blessing. Do not fear. Let your hands be strong. And something is already happening here. Though it is Judah that returned from Babylonian captivity, Israel's already there. There are already people from both the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Israel that was at one time divided. Now back in the land, there is just one Jewish people. There's just one Israel. God already had begun to draw back all of His people, the whole house of Israel. And He will do it in a much more magnificent way than we could possibly fathom. Ezekiel 34.26 I will make them and the places around my hill a blessing. I will cause showers to come down in their season. They will be showers of blessing. So the way to understand this, verses 9-13 through through 13 here, is an immediate encouragement to the people who were there in the land right then. An ongoing encouragement. Remember I told you Sunday, they're still building the house of the Lord. Man, let your hands be strong. Stay with it. Stay at it. I'm with you, the Lord says. I'm going to bless you. I want to bless you. So it's an immediate encouragement. But it is also a long-term promise of what He is going to do for His people, Israel. That He will fulfill His promise to Abraham through you. I will, I will make your seed a blessing to all the earth. So be strong. Hang in there. Trust me. You know, the best way, the best way you can be a blessing to someone else, obey the Lord. I'm convinced of this. The best way I can bless my family, my friends, my extended family, people I come in contact, my, my, my church fellowship, the best way I can bless others is first and foremost by obeying the Lord. And this is what He's saying to His people, let your hands be strong, obey Me, do as I, as I told you to do. Abraham did. Think about the blessing that came through Abraham's very simple and yet very traumatic obedience. God says, Abe, I want you to take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go sacrifice him. Genesis 22. That's the first use of the word love in the Bible. Your son whom you love, go sacrifice him on the hill that I'm going to show you. He takes him up onto Mount Moriah. He builds an altar there. He prepares to sacrifice his son because we find out later in the Scripture that Abraham believed God was sufficient to raise him from the dead. So by Abraham's reckoning... He was going to have to kill his son, watch his son bleed out, and then perhaps miraculously God would raise him back to life. But he would have to go through that. And Abraham loved God more even than his own child. And he obeyed. And God stopped him. God stayed Abraham's hand where God would not stay his own hand when his own son was sacrificed. But Abraham was obedient, and because of that, because he trusted God, simple obedience, the Lord says in Genesis 22.18, In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Obey God, and you will bless people. Obey Him in ways we can't even fathom. 
Our best blessing to other people is our obedience to God. And if you're just obedient to God, you may not be the world's best evangelist, but you know what? In your obedience to the Lord, you may yet be used to save someone's life for eternity. They may simply see you obeying and begin to wonder about it and begin to inquire about it and to see your faithfulness to the Lord. So once again, we discover it's not about us, is it? It really isn't. Even my faithfulness is not about me. It's about other people. As I am obedient to the Lord. Let our hands be strong in obedience, and in so doing we will bless others. Verse 14, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Just as I purposed to do harm to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, says the Lord of hosts, and I have not relented, so I have again purposed in these days to do good to Jerusalem. And to the house of Judah, he says, do not fear. God is faithful in all things. He is faithful in mercy. And He is faithful in justice. He is faithful in grace. And He is faithful in wrath. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11 tells us, It is a trustworthy statement, for if we died with Him, we will also live with Him. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He will deny us. If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. And understand, I've shared this before, that statement, if we are faithless, He remains faithful, it doesn't mean that He remains faithful just to bless everybody no matter what they do. He is faithful to His nature. Which means those deserving of wrath will receive wrath because God is faithful. And those deserving of grace, which is none of us, those who receive grace by faith in Him, they will be blessed with salvation because God is faithful. He is 100% faithful. He is 100% right on. He is righteous. He's going to do the right thing. And His faithfulness is glorious for those who are under grace, but it is furious for those who are under wrath. Either way, God is unequivocally consistent. Now, he gets down to some practicality. He says, let your hands be strong. He talks about being obedient. So here's how to do it. Verse 16. These are the things which you should do. Speak the truth to one another. Judge with truth and judgment for peace in your gates. Also, let none of you devise evil in your heart against one another. And do not love perjury, for all these are what I hate, declares the Lord. Hate, the word sane in the Hebrew, that is translated here hate. You might want to write this down. It means hate. (laughs) It is what it is. He hates this stuff. Here's more that I believe would make God furious. The word sane means to detest. I loathe these things, he says. I abhor this. Four things the Lord hates. And the first is absolutely fundamental. The Lord hates lies. Well, of course He would. He is the truth. And Jerusalem, that will be called the city of truth, is not a place where God tolerates lies. All lies. Little white lies and big lies and white lies or lies that are dark as night. doesn't matter. He hates it. He hates it. Because all lies stand opposed to the character of Christ. 
Jesus said in John 8.44, The devil was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. That's who he is. For he's a liar and the father of lies. God hates lies. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 19 says, Truthful lips will be established forever, but a lying tongue is only for a moment. Isn't that ironic? That's the opposite of how most people think. They think a lie will buy them time. But the Lord says, no, a lie is momentary. It is transient. You want to buy time? Speak the truth. Because the truth is forever. It doesn't mean you can be a jerk about speaking the truth. Honey, do you like this dress? No, actually, it's very ugly, and I have to tell you because God said be truthful. (laughs) Gentlemen, not a wise move. (laughs) Ephesians 4.15, you know the verse, speaking the truth in love. That love is the basis for speaking truth. We are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ. Ephesians 4.25, therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. We have a saying around here that we like to say, walking in the light. Just walk in the light. That's, that's speaking truth. It's being honest with who we are and what we are and who we're about. Speak the truth. The Lord hates lies. Secondly, the Lord hates injustice. Or unfairness. There in verse uh, 16, he talks about, he says, Judge with truth and judgment for peace in your gates. Now the city gates was where judgment took place. That was court. You know, if you had a problem, you went to the judge of the city or the leader of the city, and he would sit in the city gate, and they would have counsel there, and they would answer questions or, or solve, you know, court cases in that place. God says, man, I hate injustice. I hate unfairness. Judge with truth. Make judgments for peace. I like the Hebrew there. It's mishpat shalom. Mishpat shalom is make judgments that establish peace. So when you do so, when you judge, do so to establish peace. Now that, along with truth, is right in keeping with the nature, again, of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 9-7, There will be no end to the increase of His government or of peace on the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The Lord hates injustice. The Lord hates liars. Number three, the Lord hates a heart devising evil. And here's the phrase I want you to catch and note here, and maybe even underline in your Bibles. Let none of you devise evil in your heart. In your heart, he says. It wasn't just Jesus in the New Testament who started talking about the heart. God was talking about this Long before, Christ, by His Spirit, was saying the same thing in the Hebrew Scriptures that He was saying in the New Testament Scriptures. This key phrase. He's not talking about evil that you act upon. He's not talking about evil behavior. He's talking about evil intent. Evil in the heart. Evil that has not even come out yet. Evil that's stirring up, being devised. Evil thoughts, as we talked about on Sunday. Just having bad thoughts toward another person. That's what he's talking about. And he hates it. Wow. How do I control that? 
I tell you what, the moment an evil thought pops into your heart, a bad thought, a negative about someone else, you pray it out. Jesus, Jesus, help me to love this person even more. When Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, He's concerned about your heart and mine. Because our hearts can go bad. We start breaking bad. As we talked about on Sunday. The Lord hates that kind of evil devising inside. Jesus said in Matthew 15, 18, the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. And what we again learn here, and we can see, is the utter consistency throughout all of the Scriptures. Christians need to understand the Hebrew Scriptures are equally valid. And Jewish people need to understand the New Testament is equally valid because it is all God's Word and it is all speaking the same message. The message of Jesus Christ. And the message of His love and His grace. And the message of the heart. So again, we learned that what the law did was just shed light on what the Father knew was going on in the heart all the time. He hates a heart devising evil. And number four, and finally, the Lord hates perjury. That's very specific. Lying under oath. Coming to that court case and lying about it. And it's interesting. These four things. Lying, a lack of justice, evilly devised plans in the heart, and perjury. Why these four? Now, there may be a number of reasons, and part of it is probably just that God is so opposed to this kind of behavior, to this kind of mentality that's represented by all four of these. But thinking about Him again, every single one of these things God hates happened during the lying, unjust, evilly devised, and perjurious trials of Jesus. All four of these things happened during those six trials on the night of Jesus' betrayal. He was lied about. He was treated unjustly. There was evil intent that had been devised over the years by the Jewish leaders. And there was perjury. And all of this led to the death, the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. God would say to you, would say to me, do the opposite. Speak truth. And judge for peace. And devise good in your heart. Man, think about how you can do good for someone else. And if you're angry with someone, turn it around. How can I bless them? And be a truthful witness. And in so doing, we will find that our hands become stronger for obedience. Now, remember the question the Lord uh, was asked that started all of this back in chapter 7, verse 3. Shall I weep in the fifth month and abstain as I have done these many years? That's what man does. And God is now about to come right back around and finally address that and make a complete end of of the question and, and His intentions. But what man does is we memorialize all kinds of things in sorrow. You know, why do we have headstones in a cemetery? So that we can go visit and remember and look back and and I understand that and, and there can be some comfort and some peace there but I'll tell you what the real comfort and peace is knowing that I'm going to see that person that's that's my joy and that's that's the reason I believe the Lord continues to draw us forward because whenever we look back it's it's a sad time 9 9/11 memorials every September 11th when it comes around it's a sad time we look back at a tragedy You know, December 7th, the Pearl Harbor invasion is a tragedy. 
Memorial Day, when we think about the lives of those lost, yes, buying our freedom, but it, it's, it's, it's sad. What does the Lord say about all this? Verse 18, Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth, and the fast of the fifth, and the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth months. These guys love to fast. There's a lot of bummed out fasting going on. They will become joy, gladness, and cheerful feasts for the house of Judah. So love, truth, and peace. G. Campbell Morgan put it this way. He said, none of these things had been in the purpose of God for His people. They had resulted from their sins. All of these fasts that they were keeping, they were fasting over the loss of the temple. Well, the temple was lost because they had sinned. So their fasting was just wallowing in that guilt and shame and and horror. Morgan goes on, the fast, therefore, were the result of their sins. In jealousy and fury, which, by the way, is the outcome of love, Jehovah would put away their sins and so restore them to true prosperity. In that day, let them still remember and observe. Only let the observance be a feast in celebration of God's grace instead of a fast in memory of their sin. Remember what Jesus said? The attendants of the bridegroom, they don't fast when the bridegroom's there. They just fast when he's taken away. And so it is appropriate, I believe, at times to fast as we await the coming of Christ. But my friends, I doubt there's going to be anyone fasting in the Millennial Kingdom. It's going to be Twinkie time. It's going to be glorious. I'm asked, you know, in our glorified bodies, will will we be able to eat? I can't see how we won't. We just won't gain any weight. Yeah. We don't fast when Jesus is there. Because when Jesus is there, it's glorious. It is feasting time. It is celebration time. It is party time. And we will go up to Jerusalem along with all the inhabitants of the earth in that millennial kingdom to feast and celebrate and raise a shout of joy. Do you want to do that? I mean, that's, that's where God's leading us. And that's why when His people come saying, should we keep fasting? He's like, dudes, do you want to fast? Why would you want to fast? Oh, because it makes me more spiritual. Yeah, you're thinking of you. Why would you want to fast when you could feast? And the Lord says, that's what's coming. Joy, gladness, cheerful, feast. He says, so, man, love truth and love peace Isaiah chapter 65 has this to say behold my servants will eat you will be hungry behold my servants will drink but you will be thirsty behold my servants will rejoice but you will be put to shame behold my servants will shout joyfully with a glad heart but you will cry out with a heavy heart and you will wail with a broken spirit and I believe the dichotomy there that he's talking about probably this is Rick's guess here so don't it's not doctrine it's just my guess the servants he's talking about are those who have been raptured those who are celebrating gloriously the, the, the honeymoon with Jesus in the heavens And those who are sorrowful are those who are left behind in recognition that they missed what was going on. The last section. The last section of this is not God's hope for His people. It's God's will 
for His people. In other words, it's what God will accomplish. Look at verse 20. Thus says the Lord of hosts, it will be, it will yet be that peoples will come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one will go to another saying, let us go to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I will go also. So what he's describing here is these, these different people getting together and going, let's go. Come on, let's go. Hey, I want to go. Well, can I go too? Verse 22, so many peoples and mighty nations will come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. And what God's contrasting here, it's not just a little delegation from Bethel that's coming down to find out if we should keep fasting. This is people from the nations, people from all over the earth going up to Jerusalem to feast and to celebrate and to rejoice in the presence of the Lord to seek His favor. And verse 23, He says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days, I love this, In those days, ten men from all the nations will grasp the garment of a Jew saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. What a turnaround! Because right now, in this world, when people grasp the garment of a Jew, it is rarely a positive thing. It's usually a negative. It's usually an anti-Semitic, hateful move. It is not recognized that God is with you. But it will be. It will be. People are literally going to be grabbing Jews right and left saying, Take me to Him. Show me where He is. You're one of His. Now listen, you ever stop to consider why certain stories are in Scripture and others are left out? John tells us in John 21-25, there were also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that not even the world itself could contain all the books that would be written. Massive library that just tells of Jesus. And yet with all of that source material to draw from, all of that history, all of that glorious experience that the apostles had, certain miracles are referred to and others never are. Some of the miracles of Jesus are are mentioned over and over and over in all of the Gospels, while other things are omitted completely. Why? There's a wonderful story spoken of by Matthew. Mark and Luke that comes to mind. When you read this passage, in those days, ten men from all the nations will grasp the garment of a Jew. Do you remember when that happened? Jesus was going to help out Jairus, the uh, synagogue leader. His daughter was dying. He's moving through a crowd of people, massive people. Everybody's trying to, you know, everybody's trying to get contact with Jesus, and all of a sudden he stops. Power just went out from me, which I've told you before, freaks me out. I mean, that's really cool. You know, Jesus is walking along and suddenly he knows supernatural power. He's just gone. He was a powerful dude. Power's gone out from me, he says. This word here for garment. In those days, ten men from all the nations will grasp the garment of a Jew. The word garment in the Hebrew is kanaf. And it's literally the corner of the garment. It's the hem of the garment. They're going to grasp the hem. 
And there was a woman in that crowd with a 12-year hemorrhage. She had been bleeding for 12 straight years. Spent all her money on the doctors, the Bible tells us. She was heartbroken. She was sick. She had no money left. And she heard Jesus was coming to town. After hearing about Jesus, Mark 5.27, she came up in the crowd behind Him and touched His cloak. For she thought, if I just touch His garments, I will get well. And immediately the flow of her blood was dried up. She felt in her body that she was healed of affliction. She grasped the garment of a Jew. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Okay, so so Rick, are you saying that you think that this is a prophecy of that, 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 that what God spoke prophetically through Zechariah was looking forward, that, that Zechariah perhaps even had this, this in mind? Of course I am. Absolutely. But she would not be the only one to grasp the hem of the garment of a Jew. She would just be the first. The first listed in Scripture, the first realizing that if I grasp hold of this one, I will be taken to where God is. She saw God in Jesus. She knew the power was here. She recognized somehow He was Messiah. And that corner of the garment, as many of you know, that was the place that signified the authority of the man. She grasped the garment of the Jew. That one Jew who could heal her. And that's all it takes. That is all it takes to reach out in faith and grasp the garment of Jesus of Nazareth for healing. But many of you, I would guess probably most of you here tonight, have done that. You prayed a prayer. You, you bowed the knee. You, you, you gave your heart to Jesus. You grasped the garment of grace. And you held on. And you said, Lord, save me. I'm a sinner. I need you. And the flow of sinful blood dried up in you and He saved you in that day. But understand this. For those of us who have already grasped hold of the garment of grace. Paul says in Colossians 1.27, God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So here's the deal. Christ is in you, brothers and sisters. Let us live our lives in such a way that when people see that God is in us, they will grasp hold of us and say, take me where He is. Show me where He is. I can see God is in you. I want to go where He is. And Father, we pray for this grace over us. We pray, Lord, that You will enable us to live our lives in such a way that people will see our good deeds and glorify our Father who is in heaven. That as we walk through this world, people will see Christ in us and grasp the garment, grab hold and say, hey, take me where He is. That we, Father, would have hands strengthened for obedience. That in our obedience, others might see Jesus. In our faithfulness, such that it is, others might get a glimpse that there is more in us than us. That there is Christ in us. And that Jesus, You are here in this place. And may we be used of You to bring the lost to You. May we bring people to Jesus. And it's in Your name, Lord Jesus, that we pray tonight. Amen. Amen.